Uh, today's reading can be found on pages 526 and 1109 of the Bibles next to your seats. This is God's word. Psalm 51, 1 through 12. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness, even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Hebrews 5, 5-10 In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever, in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who would save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and he was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. The word of the Lord. That's a weird name, isn't it? Sorry if you're vis- if I don't didn't, don't know you and you're visiting today and your name is Melchizedek. You don't have a weird name. It's okay. You have a great name. Um, let's pray for a moment. Our God of grace, thank you for um, being gracious when we are um, undeserving and broken and frail. You created us beautiful. You created us um, unique, um, and you see us in all our beauty and glory, but you also see us um, in, in all our raw brokenness. And we come to you today from different kinds of brokenness, different, different flavors, and, uh, and we're all more of a mess than we care to admit, and yet the gospel, the message of Jesus, tells us that even though we're more of a mess than we care to admit, we are more loved and validated and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined. So teach us now through that grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Where do you get your validation? Do you know? Um, have you reflected on it? Have you pinpointed it? Where do you get, where do you justify yourself? There are um, a lot of different places you can go. Part of the difficulty on that topic is just realizing it, stopping, waking up, seeing it somehow, realizing, wow, I'm, this is where I expend my energy, and the reason I expend my energy there is because I'm looking to justify myself somehow maybe it's 
Maybe it's in being needed. You feel right and justified if you are needed by others. Maybe it's in control and your plans being successful. Maybe it's in your accomplishments. Maybe it's in your reputation, what people are saying or thinking about you. Maybe it's um, in comfort. Life is comfortable. Therefore, you feel like things are right and you, you are a justified person. You're validated. Or maybe in being busy. I can resonate with that one. Maybe it's in your appearance and how you look. The question of the week last week was, why do we crave validation? So it kind of takes it a different level. Someone said, validation is implicit to acceptance and community. It is the balm of closure that soothes the wounds of uncertainty and doubt. Validation. Someone else said, we're social creatures. Throughout human history, a person who was outside of the good graces of the tribe would be left alone to die. Someone else said, because validation helps us, helps us confirm our character and our identity. <clears throat> um, it's interesting to think about how, culturally speaking, even without even without religious sensibilities and even disposing of religion, people are still looking for a system of righteousness. Have you caught wind of this? I thought this was really insightful in an article that I read this week about um, how it was called the Church of Ted. So if you know of Ted Talks, and there's a Ted community, um, it's all about these ideas that transform. And so there's Talks. And so this person who is, who is an atheist, um, her name is Megan Husted, and she basically kind of calls out this church of Ted on, um, on just kind of how they build this structure of righteousness. It's like a new religion. So she's, you know, she's just pointing out some things she's noticed, and she says about, she says she has friends who have dispensed of God... She says, and they spend many nervous hours assembling authority structures and a sense of righteousness by bricolage. It's a fancy word. By bricolage and Fitbit, nonfiction book clubs, and Facebook likes. So it's like a new way of having a righteousness structure. In one way or another, you have something in your life that is like that validation machine for the parking ticket that you don't want to pay for. And you go to it, or you give it to someone, and they, they take it and they put it in, and it goes, chunk, chunk. You guys seen one of those? Chunk, chunk. I used to go to the 24-hour fitness downtown, and we'd park underneath, and then I'd go up, and, it, and you could do it yourself. The machine was right there. Chunk, chunk. And that's what you have in your life. You have something in your life that does that, that makes that sound. Chunk, chunk. There's something in your life doing that function for your own righteousness, for your validation, for your justification. For one person, it's food. You've got to be raw. You've got to be a locavore. For another person, it's the environment. You have to, you have to um, not have lawn. You have to, have, you, know, you, have to, you have to do all these things. For another person, it's the right socially progressive issues. 
and being on the right side of those issues. For other people, it's parenting. You know, you got to be a, you got to be an attachment parent. You got to do attachment parenting. That's what you have to do. Otherwise, you're not justified. Now, you got all that stuff, and you can make up ten more lists. And then you got you got people do it with religion. People walk in the doors of City Life Church and other places, and uh, you're doing the same thing. Religious activity becomes your chunk chunk. And so there's because there's there's two ways to run away from God. You can run away from God and avoid Him by um, irreligious ways. Or you can run away from God. It's even, it's even more covert because you're doing it in-house. You're running away from God through your religious activity because you're still creating this place. You go chunk-chunk, and it's not God that's doing that. It's your religious activity that you're hoping to do that with. I like the vision of if God is like a well of water, the water that will save us, that will nourish us completely and finally, you can either be running away from the well in the desert just blatantly running away from it, or you can be running around it. But neither of those people is actually drinking. You don't run around a well. You stop, and you get the water, and you drink it. Now, the whole sweeping force of Jesus and the Bible's big story is that you get your security and your validation from that well, from God, that only God can actually give you definitive undeserved validation despite your good works and despite your bad works. You can't be righteous or justify or validate yourself satisfactorily until God justifies and validates you. And throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament, the validation machine is the priesthood. The priesthood in the Old Testament, you know, you go to the priest and God set it up. This was God's idea to draw people to himself. There's a priesthood and the priests are there under God's authority. And what they do is you bring an animal and the offering is made, the sacrifice is made. And the priest then conveys the blessing and the acceptance and the validation of God. He, the priest turns to you and, and, and gives you his peace, gives you God's peace. That blessing that we speak uh, at the end of the service, may the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. God gave the priests those words in the book of Numbers to say to the people. It was the priest's job to turn to the people with that validation. The priesthood. <clears throat> And um, just like, here's sort of the weakness of it, is just like if, you're, if your validation today is beauty and appearance, you, um, you have to go to the mirror every morning. You know, you have to go back because you slept, you know, and then that all happened. And so now <laughs> you go back to the mirror again, right? Every day you go back to the mirror. And... Uh, and that's kind of what that, the priesthood was like. Okay, well, now you've got to come back again because you're broken, you're sinful. You've got to come back and chachunk with the priesthood. But it, this is God's priesthood that was conveying God's. But still, you've got to keep going back. You've got to bring another animal, you know. You've got to bring another offering. You've got to give another tenth of your income. Here you go. And so <clears throat> this is how the book of Hebrews, some of you are going, Mark usually talks about what we just read in the Bible. 
a long introduction. But then it'll kind of go fast, so we're like almost halfway done. So in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, because um, I can't talk about Hebrews 5 without just a few little kind of brackets in a bigger way because this is a com- kind of a, a windy argument that's made in this passage. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. This is uh, the writer of Hebrews talking to Christians and comparing the old priesthood to Jesus. And so then when it comes to Jesus, flip back a couple pages and it's Hebrews 7 verse 26. Yeah, Hebrews 7 verse 26. And it says, now it's talking about Jesus. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Jesus is the superior priesthood. Jesus brings you the superior priesthood. And a couple of the reasons why he's better than all the others were just embedded in what I just read. He's the perfect priest. So there's, he's more in God's inner circle than any of those priests who were called by God to say those blessings. He's in the inner circle. And he's perfect, so he doesn't have to offer sacrifices for himself. And he gave himself. No priest ever did that in the old priesthood. He gave himself as the sacrifice. That's crazy in the terms of priesthood stuff. That doesn't, that's a new development. So Jesus is a superior priest. And that's really point one of the two points that we get out of Hebrews chapter 5 is that the priesthood of Jesus is far superior than anything you could go to to chunk chunk the priesthood of jesus just far outstrips any of the validation stations that you've set up in your life um and then and then let me just let me just point at chapter five says jesus isn't a priest in the order of melchizedek and uh This is, this is what it says. And he was designated by God to be the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. <clears throat> I mean, we're throwing a total loop here because this is a strange character from the Old Testament. He's obscure, and there's not much we know about him. Basically, Abraham comes back from rescuing his nephew Lot, and there was a battle, and he won the battle, and he got Lot back. And as he comes back home, and he's met by certain kings, and they're sort of making treaties, and suddenly the king of Salem, Salem means peace, Salem comes, and, his, and he's, he's also called Melchizedek, which means um, Melech Tzedek, which is king of righteousness. So he's the king of peace. He's also the king of righteousness. That's in his name. And then he's called a priest of the Most High God. That's how he's described. So he's a priest. He's a legitimate priest of Abraham's God, the God of Abram's, he's called Abram at the time, not Abraham yet. And, and then Abram does this where he automatically recognizes, this is I think in Genesis 17, I might be wrong, it's right around there. He offers him immediately a tenth of all he has. 
So what that's telling us is Abram immediately recognizes this person from who knows where of an unknown origin just arrives into his life and has instantaneous validity, has a, has a far superior priesthood in his life than anything that's, that he's been going to. He's a real priest of the Most High God. He truly brings righteousness and peace into Abram's life. And Abram automatically, instantaneously just recognizes him and does the thing you do with priests and gives him a tenth, gives him an offering. There was this instantaneous recognition. Now, this passage says, that's really what, that's one of the reasons why the comparison is made between Jesus and Melchizedek. Because we go to all these things and you see them and you kind of know what they are and you even, there's even the Old Testament, the tribe of Levi and they're the priesthood and they offer and you bring sacrifice. All of them is sort of are of known origins, they're known entities and Jesus in your life arrives and instantaneously has a credibility uh, to be your best priest you've ever had, a far superior priest in your life, offers a definitive validation for you instantaneously and so the real issue is um have you tried it have you tried that validation you know you may be considering in some degree the christian faith and what it means for you right now and so that question can be put to you you can also you might also kind of start to realize I don't know, I might believe things Christians or say things Christians do or do things Christians do, but have I transferred my internal kind of validation system to this new priest? And so what I want you to consider is trying it. Just try it. What do you have to lose? If you're considering the Christian faith, this would be the thing to try. To basically, if you catch yourself validating in whatever your favorite flavor of validation is, and you catch yourself in the middle of that angst and striving and anxiety to be validated, catch yourself in the middle of it and try saying a simple prayer like this. God, you say I have been validated through your son's work on the cross. I receive it. Validate me that I can have peace. Amen. Just try it every time you catch yourself looking to validation somewhere. Because basically you're praying, I look for your complete and full validation to replace the exhausting effort of trying to validate myself through these other things. Just try it. I dare you. The second lesson from this passage is um, that your new validation is proved through hard times. In verse 7 and 8 of chapter 5, this gets, to, this gets a little bit to what really is going on in the reading that Jen gave in, in chapter 5. Um, in verse 7, Jesus is described this way. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. It's kind of an odd thing that's happening there. And I think it's best explained when you go, you say, what's, what's going on here? Why is Jesus described this way? <clears throat> well, if you kept reading, which um, we're given these sort of these boundaries in, this, in the readings of the church that we're following, the lectionary readings. But if you go stretch into the next few sentences, chapter 
5 verse 11 says, We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. It's getting real. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. And then this line, Anyone who lives on milk, still being an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. So you've got this um, intense, suddenly we're, you know, we're, we're going at it here. And, and these, these two sections kind of go together, right? They flow into each other so that, because what, what's going on with the people that are being written to, it's clear from this letter, is that they're facing hard times. They're facing persecution. They're facing struggle. And so what this little thing is cluing us into is that the writer is trying to get them back to the basics and, and they're in a lot of ways throwing it out the window. It talks about the teaching about righteousness. That's a basic teaching and it's the thing I just kind of described about the validation through Jesus. And he talks about the elementary truths of God's word. Um. <clears throat> Um, these people, these Christians are facing suffering, they're facing persecution and difficulty, and what's happening is it's revealing that they have an unstable validation system. It hasn't really set. And so in their struggle, to some degree in this community, it's disproving that they really got it in the first place. So they're having to revisit. It's like they don't even have the basics down of what the Christian faith is. And so it's kind of like this. Let's say you, you're, you're living along and your validation is through your bank account number. You know, money is your validation in life. I'm good as long as I have this, this amount, and I'm on track for this. And then you become a Christian and you say, you know what, Jesus is my new validation. I'm good if I have this, and this doesn't matter anymore. Well, then what happens if this gets chopped in half all of a sudden? Whoop. And then what do you say? There, there's the prove or disprove time. Oh, no, I'm going to die. This is terrible. That's the normal way to react. So is that the reaction? Or is it, that's okay because I got this over here. And that doesn't operate that way anymore. You go through, down the line with that. You could do it with beauty or appearance. And you've got it over here. And Jesus, and you say, well, now I got this. And then suddenly something happens. I can't be assured of this over here anymore. Now what? You know, maybe you just do what happens. You know, nature kind of does something with this over here, the beauty thing, right? Time passes. Now suddenly what? Now what are you going to do? Well, you say, well, oh, I'm going to die. It's terrible. Or you say, no, I'm good. I got this over here. You go down the line. Do it with your reputation. All of a sudden people are talking about you. All of a sudden they think you're someone that you know you're not. Now what? Does that ruin you? Does it destroy you? It hurts. Hard times hurt. They're not fun. I don't, pr- I don't ask God for hard times. <laughs> but they prove or disprove. And then you look and say, okay, I'm good. And that's what has become clear about this group that is being written to, is that the initial message have, hasn't stuck. What I would take out of that is this. Don't imagine that being a Christian... This is, I think, a problem that I see in myself and others in our culture. Don't imagine that becoming a Christian is going to mean 
now only pleasant things are going to happen. You know, now I'm going to get my way. Now things are going to start to look like this. Now success in being a Christian is it all goes well. Suddenly over here it doesn't go well. Ah, maybe what I'm doing isn't right. Maybe my faith isn't right. Maybe I wasn't doing enough over in my faith world. This is going wrong. Does that invalidate your faith? No. None of the stuff over here can touch the security of your validation that's already in place. When your tidy little cozy world is rocked in a bigger little way, and if it hasn't yet, it will be, your faith is not invalidated because nothing can touch your validation through the new priesthood that's arrived in your life. Let's pray. Our God of grace, whether we hear this from a place where we are actively running away from you in certain parts of our life, whether we are um, seeking validation in about three or four other things, or whether we've, we've been earnest and we've been pursuing you, maybe we're even hurt because you've taken our stuff away. You've taken some of the nice things in life the good things in life, you've taken them away. And, uh, and so now we're dealing with, does that mean my faith is invalid? Does that mean God is distant? Does that mean I've done something wrong? So I pray that you walk with each of us as we go only to you, only to the priesthood of Jesus to find out where we get our security, where we're validated, where we are righteous. Pray this in Jesus' own name. Amen.